we continue our series on the book of Hosea. And we've said this uh, along, the, the book itself is a book about God's love. It's not primarily about Hosea's love for Gomer. It is primarily about God's love for his people. He is going to use an illustration, a man named Hosea, in the process to show what God's love is like. But it's a story about God's love. And the reason that God put it down in paper for us is because all of us, to some degree, question whether or not God loves us. We may question that at any given moment. We may question it for a season. We may question it as we look at global events or as we look at specific things going on in our lives, we all are going to question whether or not God actually loves us because he doesn't oftentimes love us in the way that we want to be loved. He doesn't do exactly what I want him to do. And when someone uh, who is claiming to love me doesn't do exactly what I I want them to do, I I have a tendency, naturally speaking, I'm not proud of this, but, but it's just to question whether or not they actually love us. So he wrote this book. And it's a book about God's love. We said that love is experienced through word and deed. It's the verbalizing of it, and it's also putting it on display. When these two things come together, that's when we get the best chance to experience love, not just hear about it, not just intellectually know about it. We said love keeps coming back. No matter how many times there is failure on the other person's end, or even there's failure on my end, love keeps coming back. No matter how many times I fail to love Judith, if I'm going to love her biblically, I'm going to keep coming back. Same with my kids. Now, God never fails us. He never has to have a moment where he does a redo. I'm not saying that, but love keeps pursuing. It keeps coming back, whether or not the person in front of us doesn't receive it or whether or not we, in our human frailty, fail to give it. Love keeps coming back. Finally, last week we said this. Love includes consequences. To remove consequences from destructive behavior is not a loving act. Love, in the grand scheme, and this is where I was, I was uh, stopping short saying I'm not talking about husband and wife right now. I'm really talking more about that, that parent-child relationship, that God-us relationship, the, the government-people uh, relationship, etc. Um, love includes consequences. To let there um, be consequences, uh, uh, um, Life that happens and there's no consequence to our actions would be utter chaos. It would be anarchy. So love includes consequences. This week, we get to see one central truth in here. There's going to be several things we point out, but one central truth that I think Hosea is getting across to us. Love embraces emotion. Now, I want to unpack this phrase just a little bit. Love embraces emotion, which on part of that means that it accepts that there is this emotional component to who we are. We are not cyborgs. We are not robots. We are emotional creatures that are designed to feel. Yes, we have thoughts, but there's something that goes past those thoughts into the depths of our heart, and it stirs us. It moves us. We are emotional creatures because God is an emotional God. The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation attach emotion to God over and over and over again. Here's the difference. God's emotions are not affected by the fall of man. In other words, his emotions are not subject to sinful desires as are ours. But the same is true of our minds. Our minds are subject to sinful thoughts and patterns and philosophies 
etc. Emotion is a part of life. Now, can I just confess this? You may not know this. We are a Presbyterian church. Now, we don't wear that on our sleeve. I mean, it's not something we, you know, we're neither um, proud of it uh, uh, in, a, in a, a bad sense, nor are we embarrassed of it. But, but here's what it means. Presbyterians, by and large, are just thinking creatures. Like, I won't walk you through this, but just, just trust me on this. We've been the theological conscience of America for, for years and years and years. I, we love to think deeply about truth. We love to explain things. We love our diagrams and charts. Um, If there's a way to explain it, by golly, we will do it. And what that means is that at times we miss out on another component that God made that he intended us to live in and out of, and that is the emotional component of who we are. Here's what we are guilty of. We are guilty of actually placing the intellect above emotion and saying emotion is actually a secondary and less than component of who we are. Here's how I've heard it illustrated. Well, the mind is the engine of the train, and the emotions are the caboose of that train. And so the caboose is always going to follow the engine. And that sounds really good when you're trying to make a statement like, you know, we got to think rightly. That sounds really good. The problem is this. We tend to downplay emotions as if they are the only things that are affected by the fall. So when I say love embraces emotion, what I mean is this. It welcomes emotion. It, it not only allows for it, it invites it. Mom, Dad, you ever been guilty of shutting emotion down your kid? You ever been guilty of your child coming with an emotional response to a situation and you have gone only at the intellect? Son, why are you getting so upset? This is so stupid. And it's okay to think that in your mind because you're way past them in age or But they are responding in a way that God actually intended for them to have emotion. They're not in control of it yet. It may not be the right response in that moment. It may be based on faulty logic. It may be based on something that is not even true. But it is emotion, and love embraces emotion. But here's what I also mean by this. Not only does it invite it, not only does it welcome it, not only does it seek it, not only does it sit and rest and and, and even think deeply about how it is that I might be feeling. Here's what love also is when we embrace this. It corrals it. It knows how to use it appropriately. It knows how to bring the best out of life. Can I give you a quick uh, illustration? Has there ever been a moment in a church service in which you have been so overwhelmed that, that there's been this response that you've you have had to physically respond because what's going on in this song right now um, uh, emotionally is, is driving you. Here's what we do as Presbyterians. You don't ever have to worry about our songs being junk songs because we like to think. What we want to do is hopefully that the music itself can match the words and we can have these words of truth that tell us great things about God Created in, 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 a, in a way in which the music um, uh, is allowing those words to hit us in a way that it might not hit us before. Have you ever watched a, um, a, 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 I don't want to say a romance movie. Um, to love my wife, I have done that. 
Uh, have you ever uh, watched a movie with your wife? I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, in which you were doing this really just to support her. Like you were taking one for the team. You know, you're going, and then you get into the movie. And as time goes on, you realize, man, there's something. And you get to the end there, and there may be a moment with a, a, a father and a child or a spouse, something, and you, and you find yourself, you know, it's get a little misty in, in the room uh, right there. And then what's typically going on in the movie at that time? Isn't there some kind of music going on in the background? Isn't there something that is underscoring right there that's allowing us to see, feel, embrace what's actually happening? Okay, so for those of us that are built more like Spock, you know, we say, oh, yes, this is what's going on. He is loving his wife. It knows when to take emotion and to pursue it because it's the best thing in the moment. It knows when to corral it. I have been guilty on more than one occasion of not corralling my emotion. And I wish I could say, you know, nine years ago was the last time that happened. It was just this week. It was just this very week that for a moment amongst adults... Long day, frustrating things going on in life. They're all excuses that I could make for it. The reason is I'm a jerk. And there was a moment where I lost it and I let my frustration um, show in the moment and I looked like a four-year-old. And if I were four, it would have been fine. Unfortunately, I'm 52. It knows when to take the emotion, when to corral it, when to to put it in, in, in the right direction. Love embraces it. Here's what we're going to see in this passage in Hosea chapter 11, 12, and 13. God is going to use language that is going to talk about his response to his people. Now, let me ask you this. If a parent is never stirred emotionally by their child, what is your first thought? It's probably not a healthy relationship, is it? It may be a functional relationship. Parent may provide for that kid. Parent may give what is needed. They may cook. They may clean. They may wash. They may bathe. They may go to work. They may do all the things that, that our parent is supposed to do in order to provide the basic necessities of a child. But it probably is not a healthy relationship if there's never an emotional connection between father and son or mother and daughter, etc. So God is going to show us in here, he is not emotionally disengaged from his kids. And when his kids run off in a direction that he knows is dangerous and destructive, they don't, God just doesn't sit back and say, well, you know, they're going to dig their own grave. They're just going to, you know, they're going to have to deal with it. God begs and pleads, invests. And then he's going to talk about something in here. It's one of the most powerful moments in the, in the book of Hosea. And I promise you this, I will not be able to convey it in the English language. I just won't be able to do it. But the first three chapters, as well as chapter 11, are, are some of the most profound pictures of God's love for his people. We're going to do the same way we've done the last few weeks, and that has been the bulk of our time in chapter 11. I'm going to get a little bit more information on chapter 12, and then I promise you it's just going to be a brief word on chapter 13 because, I'll say it again, if you want me to walk through all of the specific sins, I'm happy to do that in off time. I just didn't think Mother's Day would be the best time to do that. 
So chapter 13, we'll, uh, we'll summarize. And then look at chapter um, uh, 11. Um, in fact, if you're physically able, would you stand uh, in honor of God's word as I read the first 11 verses of Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Admon? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. You may be seated. In chapter 11, he says this, I love my son. Now, he's been using uh, multiple illustrations. The primary illustration in this book is of a husband and a wife. It's Hosea and Gomer. It is of a faithful husband and an unfaithful wife. It's a faithful God and an unfaithful church. That's the primary image he's been showing throughout is that of a husband and wife, but he switches gears here now and he goes to that of a parent and a child. Keep in mind, anytime the scripture uses a father and a son, it's inclusive of a mother and a child as well. It's just in this day and age, it was written um, through the male perspective. So I, I have loved them like a son. Verse one, when Israel was a child, I Loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, a couple of different times he's going to do this in here, but Matthew takes this particular passage right here and he directly applies it to Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now Hosea didn't realize he was writing about Jesus. Hosea is taking the words of God. He's remembering the story of long ago when Egypt was... Uh, was in, in control over this nation of Israel, the people that had been blessed by God. Joseph was the one that got them going and, and getting started out, um, uh, giving them a place in the land. And so they began to prosper. And you remember what happened when Joseph died and there was no longer a, a, a Pharaoh there that remembered them. They overtook the people and they put them to work. 
And this went on for hundreds of years. And they cried out to God. And the scripture says that God turned his ear. He inclined to hear them. He heard their cry because of the compassion inside of them that moved towards his people. He then sends this guy named Moses. And Moses was the pinnacle of leadership, was he not? Everything that you could ever want in a leader. Moses was a terrible leader in many ways. And out of the gates, he even tells God, you really probably should get somebody else because um, I I don't talk very good. And so God says, I'll take care of your voice. Uh, Yeah, but um, I'm going to go there. And then they're going to say, well, who sent you? Tell them I am sent you. Well, do you really think they're going to know who that is? Well, I'm going to give them several signs along the way. God, I really just don't think I'm going to shut up and go get my people out of Egypt. So on the way out of Egypt, Hosea is writing here. God is reminding him, I loved my children. I took them out of in some incredible and miraculous ways. Now let this sit. In, in, in ways that were proving over and again, every time there was this miracle, every time there was this sign, there were 10 of them. Every one of these was a sign that God was superior and sufficient over every one of their false gods. And so they went out, and then when they got out of there, you remember, they're just walking along. They've been slaves. They're, not, not, uh, they're trained in anything other than, than um, uh, uh, manual labor, etc. And so they weren't warriors and soldiers yet, and so they, they got this army that begins chasing them. And what do they do? God help. And so God, get this, parts water. <laughs> Millions of people make their way across this. They go on the other side, and then when the, e- the, the, the evil empire begins following after them, Vader there, God then calls the water back on and drowns them. Now, this is God's past faithfulness. He's telling you, I loved you. He's going all the way back to when he was bringing them up out of Egypt. They were just a nation that was getting started. And so he gives this picture of them being a small child. He says, the more that he called them, the more that they went away from him. Even in those early days when these incredible miracles were done, they saw it, but they didn't remember it. Now look at this word picture. This is fantastic. In verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Now do you remember those days? Do you remember those days of your child learning to walk, the, the legs which are not stable at all, and they kind of hold on to things, and they're doing this, and, and you take your fingers, and they grab your fingers, and so they're doing this all the way along, and you are there. Now, are, are you in any way looking at them and saying, you know, unless you walk perfectly, I'm not going to give you my acceptance and joy. Except just loving what's going on with this kid that can't do hardly anything. But man, does your heart go out to this child. He says, I remember walking with them. I I, I loved being with my son, even though when I would call out to him, what would he do? Crawl away. Hey, son, come here. (laughs) The more I called to him, the, the more they left, but man, I was there to get them going, training them, investing in them. It wasn't, they didn't realize, he says down there at the end, they didn't realize that it was I who was the one that was doing all these things. 
Now, in verse 4, it's a bit of a strange thing. Some of you may have a translation that talks about a yoke that's in there. And um, uh, it's, it's actually fairly difficult to translate. I think the heart of what he's getting across, though, I mean, here's this, is that the yoke of slavery that was on them in Egypt was going to be lifted and God was going to put his burden upon them, which was much, much lighter. It doesn't mean that they had no obligations in life to anything. It just means that he was going to put a God-sized burden on them. And what does Jesus tell us about that yoke? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus is the one who would eventually fulfill um, this for them. So he loved them in the past. In verses 5 through 7, he tells them that he loves them in the present. He lets them know that Assyria is on their way and that Assyria is going to uh, take over them. They're going to rule over them because the people refuse to come back to him. As many times as he called, they're not coming back. Now, notice this. It says um, that... that, uh, uh, even though, verse 7, my people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. What are we to do with that? Does this mean that they are coming back in repentance and they're saying, God, I'm turning back to you? I'm bowing the knee of submission? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is they're calling out to him in the same way that we would want a genie to do things for us, in the same way that we would want God to turn into Santa Claus and be able to do what it is that we want him to do when we want him to do it. So no, you haven't actually turned back towards me. If you were to turn back towards me, I would turn all of my anger. I, I, would, I would put it, but they weren't doing that. They were just trying to get rid of the consequences rather than drawing near to God. Can I ask you, have you ever done that? Just wanted God to get rid of the negative consequences in your life without actually returning back to him. It's natural, it's normal for us to want negative consequences out of our lives. That's a good thing. You're human if you want that. What God says is, I want you to come to me. To you this way, since it's father and son here, this illustration, you can apply the same thing, though, to, uh, to, to, to a marriage or any friendship. Um, what's it like when one person clearly wrongs the other in the process, and there has been pain that has been involved? You have wounded, you have hurt someone in the process. Now, if there is relational strain that takes place and if there's other kinds of consequences that have have gone into this, and I don't mean man-made consequences, I mean the natural consequences that occur, it's natural for us to say, man, I just want this all to go away. I can't believe because of the decisions that I made, and now I've I've hurt my son or I've hurt my wife or or whatever the, the, the relationship may be. You just want all of those things to go away and you just want it to get back to normal, don't you? But what is the process that has to happen. You got to come to the other person, don't you? You got to own up to what it is that you have done. And you got to sit down. And the two parties can own up to what it is that they did, not taking on more responsibility than they should, but just owning up to their own part in it. And then there is this opportunity to ask for forgiveness. And then you're going to to then say, I will forgive you. Maybe this person won't forgive. I, I don't know. But you gotta, you got to do the relational work that is needed in order for there to be this intimacy that will be built. It's normal and natural just to step back and say, I just want everything to go back to the way it was without having to do a thing. That's cheap. 
And hear me, it will never lead to the kind of intimacy that you're longing for. If you back up and do not pursue conflict, I don't mean look for conflict to create it. I mean look to, to, to pursue the resolution of conflict. If you back up, it is never going to lead the intimacy that you want. True intimacy is built on resolved conflict. And so this is what God's saying. You can call all you want. But until you're willing to come back and be in my presence and own up to what it is you've done, until you take responsibility for your choices, I'm going to continue to let you go until it tastes so bad that you finally have nowhere else to go but to turn towards me. Another way to look at it may be you may have had a child. Um, uh, neither of my brothers were like this. This really was uh, me growing up. Uh, again, I don't take pride in this, but it, it is what it is. Uh, when I wanted something out of my mother, I would turn on the charm. Once I got old enough to know how to do this, I got to know what kind of language it is that my mom wanted to hear, what, what, what spoke to her, et cetera, and, and, and I would turn that on. Dear, sweet, wise, loving mom. Son, what do you want? This is, this is what they're doing. Oh, great, glorious, almighty, wonderful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, God. Remember how much you love to forgive sins? Remember that part? Oh, God, here we are. Here we are to declare how wonderful you are. Do you remember the parable that Jesus had? There was one person's praying. I'm sorry, I went to parable. One person's praying, and, and, and this person that's praying is, is looking at the crowd, and, and they're putting on the pastor voice, and they're saying, Oh, God, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like one of these people. And what is the other guy doing? He is crying out. I won't do it crying out the top of his lungs, God, just have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, which one of those do you think went home righteous? Oh, man, just come before God. Own up to what it is you've done. Go before others. Just own up to what it is that you've done. Do the work to, that's needed to... to have the resolve. The only thing that's needed with God is just this. You come with a sincere, broken heart over your sin. That's all you can bring to the table. In verses 8 through 11 here in chapter 11, he tells, tells that he loves his son even in the future, what he's going to be doing. These verses have been called by many theologians the window into the heart of God. How... Can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? God is looking at what needed to be done. And what I may, when I say needed to be done, please don't misunderstand me. God is all-powerful. He is sovereign. There is nothing he cannot do. What I'm saying is through his sovereignty... 
he's, he's declaring that the only thing these people were going to respond to was when they finally reached the point of having so much separation from God, their lives had become so miserable that they would turn back to him. And so here's what he's saying to them. How can I give you up? I love you. I don't want to have this time of separation, nor do I want to see what it is that you are going to go through. You remember how worthless you thought it was when you were a kid when your parent would say, this punishment is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you? I'd say, my behind, I assure you, is going to hurt far more than your feelings are. But do you know how true this is for God? How? The question he is asking is not an intellectual question that you shouldn't go down a road and think, well, how can God not know God? Quit. He's trying to get across to us the depth of his emotion for us. Because love embraces emotion. And even when punishment was coming, it was the wisest plan. It was the right plan. It was the thing that was the best thing for the people in the moment. Even knowing it's the best plan, it's the wise plan, it's the right plan, God hurts. Because love embraces emotion. See, I don't know where you may be today with one of your children. You may have a child that has been wandering for quite some time now. It may be an adult child. It may be a child in their early 20s. It may be a child in their teens. And you may have come to the conclusion that the best and wisest plan is to let that child go. And what God gives you permission to do is to say, man, it's the right plan. It's the wise plan. And I'm going to weep my eyes out. Both things can be true simultaneously. When he says Adma and Zeboim, he's referring to two places that were along in the same lines of Sodom and Gomorrah. He wiped them out completely. There's no trace of them in human history. And God is saying, I cannot do that to you, even though that's what you deserve. What I am going to do is to Leave a remnant. I'm going to bring a people back. Why? He says, my heart is changed. And look at this. All my compassion is aroused. Knowing what needs to happen, what is going on inside of me is forcing me. It's the right thing. It's the holy thing. It's the godly thing. God's heart is being forced. Please take that in the light that it is to move in a direction of compassion towards his people. It's the righteous thing. It's the holy thing. It's the right thing. And it's the emotional thing. Have you forgotten that God emotes over you? Have you heard him recently draw up alongside of you and weep with you? Do you remember when uh, uh, Martha and Mary, they had their loved one, Lazarus, who was, was dead. So they sent word to Jesus, hey, he's, he's dying now. And so come. And so Jesus stays an extra day. 
And then he's on his way there. And while he's there, um, one of the sisters just comes out to him and says, if you would have been here, then he would be alive. And what does Jesus do in that moment with her? No. In the shortest verse in all the scriptures, it says that Jesus wept. Here she comes attacking Jesus, going after God, telling God how much wiser she is than he is, how much better her plan would have been than his. And what is Jesus' response? I think he actually embraces her and they just cry. And I don't mean just like little misty kind of stuff, Hallmark movie for me. I mean like snot bubbles. When was the last time you sensed God emoted over you? Or is he so cold and so distant that he is just a taskmaster master that is waiting for you to blow it, and the moment you blow it, he is pouncing on you like a tiger? Hosea is a book about God's love. And today, if you can right now go into your mind and say, here are the four or five ways that I have wronged God, great Go to him. Do the work, the hard work of resolving conflict. Own up to what does you do. And I'm telling you, according to his word, for all who come to him with a contrite heart, a broken spirit, he weeps, he welcomes, he embraces. For those who walk away when he calls out over and over and over again, He will try to get your attention. Finally, um, can do all this really quickly together. In chapter 12 and verse 13, it's giving a history of the unfaithfulness of the individual Jacob as well as the nation of Israel. And he's going to go through the childhood of Jacob in another moment. And so he starts out from the very moment that he was even born, he was grabbing hold of his brother's heel, and that was symbolic of what he would do because Jacob means twister, deceiver, and it means that someone would come from behind someone, up from behind their back, in order to manipulate and deceive them in the process. He was like that from at birth. He would certainly do that later on with his brother. Throughout his lifetime, he proves to be over and over and over again unfaithful. And God, on the other hand, chooses to be over and over and over again faithful. And at the end of chapter 11, that's what it tells us. It gives us that little comparison of an unfaithful people and a faithful God. And then in chapter 13, what it does is it unveils this this progression of sin. It got worse and worse and worse. I won't give you all the specifics because it's Mother's Day, but I will say it got so bad to the point where mothers were, were readily handing over their children to be sacrificed. That's how unnatural it had become for the people. And God is declaring to them, I can't let you go. Now, if you would, um, this week, would you, same, same exact pieces of application, but would you specifically take some time and would you walk through your life and would you recount all the ways in which God has been faithful to you along the way? 
And would you intentionally try to go back and say, God, would you bring back to me the emotion that was attached to your faithfulness? For Judith and me, it's a memory of going back to a time in which we were unable to physically have children, but getting a phone call letting us know that there were twins that were going to be coming into our home. And burning up cell phone minutes back when you had to actually pay for minutes on the way over to Augusta, Georgia. And calling our friends and having them weep for joy with us. It's also of the loss of a child. And remembering God's faithfulness to us and when we were doing everything we could to run away from him. It's remembering all of the times in which God has faithfully provided for us financially or for our health or whatever, the, the difficult times that he's gotten us through. He's, even when things have gone the exact opposite of the way that we prayed for it, it's God giving us his presence. Go back in your life. If you're married, collectively do this as a couple. How are the ways that God has been faithful all along the way? And remember the emotion that was attached to it. And then just thank God. In here, which is where I closed in chapter 11, right at the end it says that he is... Um, or, or, um, that he is going to cry out, roar like a lion. And I can't find it as I'm reading. There you go. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. I want to leave you with this, um, with this picture. Hosea speaks about this lion. God is telling them know that he is going to, like a lion, walk out, and then he is going to send out his roar. And those in the animal kingdom would hear that, and they would realize who this was. And remember, the roar was oftentimes um, even more impressive than the lion himself. But I think what he's trying to get at right here in this particular story is that God is going to, to come out. He's going to stand in front of humanity, and he is going to roar. And there will be people that will come trembling. His people will come trembling up towards him. It is the Lion of Judah. And I believe ultimately what he was referring to here, Hosea didn't realize this, but ultimately what he was referring to was a time in which Jesus would be exalted high above every other name, but he would be on a wooden cross. And the reason he would be on that cross is because of your sin and my sin. We collectively put him on that cross. It was necessary that he took on the punishment that we deserve for the choices that we have made. And because his compassion was aroused inside of him, he could not resist going to earth and living the life that we should have lived but could not live. He lived a perfect life. And as a result of that perfect life, he went to a cross to pay the debt that we owed. And what did he do on the cross it says that he roared out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was a centurion that was there at the cross. And the scripture tells us that he takes a knee and he looks up and he says, surely you are who you say you are. 
And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He roared to the world. And the world will come and all who come and bow the knee of submission to Jesus will receive forgiveness of their sins. And all of us one day, whether we hear it right now or not, all of us who have bowed the knee of submission, surrendered the controls of our lives, over all of us will one day hear, my child, well done. And we will finally get the embrace we've been longing for. We will finally see the Father's eyes like we've been longing to. We will finally hear him rejoice over us with singing. What do you want to have? Do you want to experience the compassion of God? Or do you want to take your chances on your own behavior?